This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 662. We welcome Dr. Elliot Gall. He's an associate professor at Portland State University, and we're going to talk about particle mitigation, talk a little bit about gas phase, gas phase pollutant mitigation, and uh, looking forward to a great show. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget after the show to continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. All right, the Z-Man's out this week. He's going to be at a uh, service for Passover, so he'll be back uh, next week to join us live. I'll take care of the trivia question. And glad to report that Don Weeks, Ottawa, Canada, was the first to identify midnight at Greenwich Royal Observatory as the time-counting solar mean time begins. The IAQ Radio trivia question for today, April 21st, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigation at TSI.com. Here's today's question. Name the protective covering of silk or other fibrous substance spun by the larvae of moths and certain other insects in a cover for the pupa. All right. John, you're going to have to keep an eye on the answers on that one for me. Today's guest is Dr. Elliot Gall. He's an associate professor in mechanical and materials engineering department at the Maasai College of Engineering and Computer Science at Portland State University. Dr. Gall's research and teaching interests center around developing new approaches that improve building sustainability through an understanding of the intersection of building energy use, indoor air quality, and occupant well-being. Welcome, Dr. Gall. Thank you so much for having me. I've listened to your show for a long time, so it's a thrill to be here. Well, great. Great to have you. Um, how, did, how did you end up at Portland State University there? Portland State U up in Portland, Oregon. That's right. Yeah, we are located in Portland, Oregon. And I, I came here uh, by way of, well, I did my, my graduate research at the University of Texas in Austin. 
Um, I did a, a postdoc after that in Singapore. So I, I moved abroad for three years. I joined a research group out in Singapore that was a collaboration with Berkeley, where we were studying indoor environments, specifically in tropical climates. It was a great experience to live abroad and, and see, you know, essentially a, a different sort of uh, university system, a different sort of, sort of mindset for research. And after a few years doing that, started looking to come back to the U.S., applied to faculty positions and applied to a number of positions. But PSU's application struck me because it was really the only one that I saw, at least during that cycle, that specifically said they were looking for an indoor air quality scientist to join their faculty. Others were, were more broad. So I thought, well, shoot, if I don't get this one, then you know, I better apply for this one and give this one my all because it feels like it's a strong alignment. So I applied, uh, lo and behold, uh, was selected and, and here I am. So it's been a, a great place to you know, study buildings and also it's a nice place to live. So that's nice too. Yeah, big change from you. You came up in Florida and uh, now you moved to the West Coast, uh, a little different problems on the West Coast, more forced fires and things like that. But uh, I assume that's kind of changed your, uh, to some degree anyway, what you're looking at. It has. Yeah, it absolutely has. And, and, and it's it was sort of odd that uh, the, the fires problem, you know, has sort of followed me to some extent. And I thought by coming, maybe naively, I thought by coming to the Northwest, you know, Portland's known for being a rainy, you know, yeah. almost year round rainy environment. And so I thought I was escaping the fires issue that plagues Southeast Asia every year. And so in Singapore, there's two months or three months out of the year when, you know, palm oil plantations primarily are clearing land. Uh, so a lot of the fires are sort of man-made, but there are, you know, fire smoke events in Singapore that persist for months. So it was a major air quality issue that we looked at as part of our research group in Singapore, uh, doing measurements, looking at mitigation methods uh, to remediate exposure to smoke in Singapore from largely Indonesia. And so when I came to Portland, I thought, well, you know, this will be nice to have a break from all those, you know, terrible smoke events for months of the year, you know, the, the advice was stay inside, run an air cleaner. And lo and behold, we moved here in the summer of, I think, 2016, had a nice summer that year. And the next summer, you know, had weeks and weeks of fire events in the summer here in the Northwest. So obviously it's been a, a longstanding, you know, issue in the West. Fire is part of the landscape in the West, but obviously in the last few years, it's become a lot more, you know, extreme and frequent. Well, the, the reason I, I, I had been wanting to talk to you for a while now, but then I saw Dr. Rich Corsi, he, he did a summary of um, the National Academy of Sciences, had a workshop on particle mitigation and particulate matter. And uh, I saw that you gave a presentation there and I thought, you know, this would be a great time to get you on and maybe talk a little bit about what you did at that particular workshop. That sounds great. John, can we pull up the, uh, the slides we were looking at before? Let's kind of give them an overview of what your presentation was about to start with mitigation of fine particulate matter exposures in schools. So how do we, how do we uh, make things a little better in our schools? Huh? 
Yeah, that's right. So uh, this was, you know, building on some work that we did here in Portland, Oregon with one specific school. And as part of that, you know, we looked to, you know, sort of characterize issues more broadly and look at what other schools and school districts might be doing for this particular population of, you know, uh, children in schools, obviously a susceptible population, we really should be investing in good indoor environments in schools for a whole host of reasons. John, let's, let's go. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say and that includes, you know, mitigation methods, which was, you know, one of the primary uh, topics of this of this uh, presentation. Now, the the pollutant in this case is, I don't want to say rare. It's very common throughout the country, but depending on where your building is sited, I guess, can be an even bigger problem. You're talking about trap. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and and how important it is? Yeah, absolutely. TRAP is sort of a convenient acronym. It stands for traffic-related air pollution. And I think TRAP is is handy because when we think about, you know, vehicles as a source of pollutants, we're really talking about a, a complex mixture of particulate matter of different sizes, of different chemical composition, and also gas phase compounds. So, you know, volatile organic compounds, things that you probably are familiar with, like BTEX, benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, xylene. These are all, you know, part of the matrix or the, you know, mixture that we call traffic-related air pollution. And like you mentioned, um, this is a problem in urban environments generally, right? I mean, vehicles are a major source of air pollution to our cities. But for 15% of schools, which is a, a sizable, you know, fraction of our uh, learning environments, around, you know, six and a half million children in those schools, are located in very close proximity to a roadway. So less than 250 meters is, you know, one of the thresholds by which we say you are a quote unquote near roadway school. And how do we define a roadway? Yeah, these are sort of major thoroughfares, um, you know, so uh, either, you know, interstate highways or large state highways. There is a threshold for vehicles per day. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's on the order of, you know, tens of thousands of vehicles per day. Gotcha. And then the, the, the known problems associated with being close to this trap include? Yeah, I mean, a whole host of adverse health consequences. So things like, you know, you see increases in asthma diagnoses in populations that are near roadways, right? Um, other respiratory and cardiovascular effects. You know, recent studies also link it to decrements in learning, right? So st- students learn better when they have good air quality. Right. So this was a large study in Spain that I'm showing there in the lower right that basically says, you know, in cohorts that have lower levels of traffic related air pollutants, scores of working memory. Right. Are better. Right. And that's, I think, something that's been borne out in a number of studies that, you know, our air pollution actually affects our thinking as well as our health. You know, I was the. Graphic of the United States there on the left. I, I was a little surprised to see that there's a lot of schools closer, to, if I'm reading this right, closer to these, you know, highways in places like Kentucky and West Virginia and, and you know, up in the Northeast. I was expecting more of that in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a good observation. I, I can't explain that, but yeah, I, I'd be curious to, I noticed that as well, right? You see this concentration, yeah, in, in Kentucky and sort of the, the middle region there over in the east. And, and I don't have an explanation for that. Um, it's a good, and good, Hawaii. good question. And Hawaii, <laughs> Hawaii you, you can sort of maybe rationalize. Not a whole lot of land in Hawaii that's buildable. So you, maybe everything's a little more compact. 
Gotcha. Let's go to the next one, John. Okay. So this kind of gives us an overview of the different types of uh, pollutants that become a challenge for near roadway schools. Can you kind of run us through this one real quick? Yeah, yeah, real quickly. Um, you know, I think this, the point of this slide is basically to articulate, you know, that like particles is not, you know, a monolith. It's not one thing when we say, you know, that we have elevated particulate matter and, you know, they're, they're sort of different subcategorizations that might be useful uh, for a variety of reasons, including, you know, we know that some types of particles cause, you know, have an outsized effect compared to others in terms of health consequences, right? So in the bottom left, I'm showing a plot of, you know, a plume of black carbon that's moving from the roadway, impacting the school where we did our field study. That's that big red blob is a, a, an elevated mass of what's called black carbon moving from the, the roadway to the school. Black carbon is a good proxy for the particles that come from diesel combustion. That comes from other combustion processes as well, but in large quantity from diesel combustion. Uh, diesel particulate matter is a known uh, human carcinogen. So, you know, that subset of particulate matter is one that if it's elevated, you, you want to be aware of that. Ultrafine particles, I think in the past few decades, we've learned a lot more about those very small particles and how they can penetrate deeply into the lung and enter the bloodstream and potentially cause, you know, again, outsized health effects. So that's that middle middle portion there. The, the one on the bottom right is the PM 2.5, the uh, categorization of particles that, you know, is one that is federally regulated in outdoor air and probably one we're, we're all more familiar with. The point of these three plots is basically to show that you know, the, the type of particle matters when you're trying to characterize a particular source. So in a near roadway environment, we see a lot of black carbon and a lot of very small particles. Some exacerbation of PM 2.5, but PM 2.5 comes from a lot of places, right? So it's not so uniquely identified with the roadway. Interesting. All right, let's go to the next one, John. I think this is the one we were going to skip over that, I believe, and go unless you wanted me to stop. No, I, I think we can make the point here. And, and the point is that, you know, in addressing um, near roadway environments and the particular air quality challenges for buildings located near roadways is that, you know, you have a specific source, what we call a line source, which is the roadway, right? And it's a very simple point. As you get closer to that source, you would expect levels of the air pollutants from that source to be higher. And, and that is borne out in study after study, which is what okay. this, this plot shows. Let's go to I the next one. Yeah, practical impact of that. And it's one that I think anybody could come up with. And it's sort of like ingrained in our in our brains, right? If you're if something is producing irritating or things that you know are harmful, well you should get away from it, right? So it's a simple <laughs> concept here. But, it, you know, we bore that out in some measurements in a school here in Portland, Oregon, that was being renovated, right? So boxed in red is a school in Portland called Harry Tubman Middle School, where we did a field study. The school was being renovated. And prior to the renovation, where that blue dot is, is one of the outdoor air intakes for the school. So maybe not the ideal place to bring in outdoor air to the school, you know, immediately adjacent and facing the interstate. So we thought, well, let's just take a few days of measurements and just see, how, you know, how does the black carbon concentration, again, that good proxy for the combustion emissions from diesel, how do those levels vary at the blue dot from the gray dot? So about 70 meters farther from the, from the roadway, from the highway. 
and you know, again, it's this straightforward, but it's nice to see this borne out data. The blue lines, we see a lot more black carbon adjacent to the freeway than we do on the surface street about 70 meters away from the freeway. And this is real rough, but it's about equivalent to, you know, putting a MERV-8 filter or so on the intake of your outdoor air that you realize just through dilution from moving away from the source. So it's sort of a passive, if you can achieve that really simple, low cost, continuous way to improve the quality of air that you bring in from the outdoor environment. Interesting. And this school was being renovated and had a little more money than usual for certain reasons, I guess. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Excuse me. Yeah, so there was a, a bond passed in the community to, you know, uh, address environmental issues in building stock in schools in Portland. So the school did have some resources to put into issues like, you know, lead and water, asbestos in the building, uh, structural renovations, because we're in an earthquake zone here in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, one issue uh, in this school in particular was this proximity, right? It was, you know, no surprise to the community in the school district that there would be air quality concerns in this building. So they had some resources to invest in other mitigation methods as well. So active air cleaning systems were installed in this school, which we can talk about, but essentially in the air handler uh, installed, you know, a series of of filters, MERV-8, followed by MERV-16 filtration, followed by an activated carbon scrubber in the school because of that bond. And to the school's credit, to the school district's credit, you know, they worked with myself and a colleague, Linda George, who are both air quality scientists. We worked with a a really great mechanical contractor who, you know, iterated with and discussed, you know, how might we help solve this problem? School district put put the resources they had available to them behind it. And as we'll see, I think in a moment, installed, in my opinion, a very effective air cleaning system in this school. Let's go down a slide here, John. I think at least one, maybe two. Yeah, I think we can skip this I think one. We're, we're going to get on one more. Yeah, this, this you know, just real, real quickly, this isn't specific to the school where we did our field study, but this is looking across other schools and other school districts that have installed air cleaning systems, active air cleaning systems. So this is uh, looking specifically at can filtration systems be effective at reducing concentrations of particles in schools. So I just have a, a basically a survey of the literature and you see in, in general, the answer is yes, right? We see removal effectivenesses of black carbon and PM 2.5 in schools that range from, uh, you know, maybe 40% up to 80%. So in general, you know, meaningful reductions, but, you know, wide variability and that, you know, that's where you need a, a good mechanical contract or a good design, a good implementation to, to realize a high removal effectiveness. And this is, Comparing, you've got HVAC filtration and standalone filtration. I'm not. Yeah, so that, that's distinguishing between uh, an intervention in the you know air handling system in the school. That's HVAC filtration. Standalone is at least what I'm calling it in this slide, like a portable air cleaner deployed into the occupied space of the classroom. Okay. So I tried to limit this to studies that were done in occupied uh, real schools, right? So not theoretical calculations, not, you know, testing done, you know, outside of occupied hours. These are sort of real, realized effectivenesses when the building is being used as intended. Okay. Next one, John. All right. This kind of summarizes a little better what you did for the school in Portland, I believe. 
Yeah, that's right. So I, I mentioned that the, the, the ultimate design that was settled upon, and you can see in the upper left there, this is from Google Maps, you know, Google's all-seeing eye gave us a nice ability to uh, look at the renovation that uh, ultimately was implemented. So on the left is pre-renovation, and on the right is post-renovation. So you see that substantial addition of, you know, ductwork. Um, and uh, on the upper left there is the, you know, sort of the, the core of the air handling system. So there's a single air handling system that serves the entire school. Um, and so in that air handling system, if you scroll, scroll down or zoom out a little bit there, um, all the outdoor air that's brought into the building and all the return air is cycled through, you know, a series of filters, the MERV 8 and MERV, 13, MERV 16 filters. And then I think what really distinguishes this building is the installation of this functionalized carbon, which is, you know, pretty rarely done in buildings. But again, that gets back to these discussions that we had that you know, focused on traffic related air pollution as this complex mixture. So, you know, particles are certainly elevated in a near roadway environment, but gases are as well. And many of the gases that are elevated in trap are, are of health concern. And so the school district was receptive to that idea that, you know, we, we might want to be looking to intervene for a broader suite of air pollutants than might be typically done. And they did. Right. And so we, we have some nice measurements that we can get to about not only the eff effectiveness of those particle filtration systems, but but also those gas phase air cleaning systems. Let's take a look at that, John. Scroll down a little bit. Let's get this. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. So this is a, a, a plot showing two things. On the left is a, a plot that, that many of you are, I'm sure familiar with. This is predictions of removal efficiency of a, of a filter as a function of its MERV rating. And these are sort of, uh, you know, extrapolations or interpolations from what information you get from, you know, a, a test to determine the MERV rating. So you're looking over a broader range and more continuous, but essentially the idea being, you know, higher MERV rated filters generally give you better removal efficiency. Um, you know, MERV 16 filter you see up there at the top of that plot, you should have pretty effective removal across, you know, a broad range of particle sizes. And what I'm showing on the right, you know, it's a little bit difficult to interpret without more time to explain, but these are measurements of one pollutant of concern, black carbon, which I've already mentioned, a, part, yeah. a particle phase pollutant. So we took measurements in outdoor air, that's the red line, uh, in inside the building, right? So that's the blue, the blue line, what's coming back from the building. And then the green line is what's getting pushed out into the building from the supplier system. So if you do the math, right, what we're able to show with these measurements is that we're removing 85%. We have an 85% effectiveness of our intervention for black carbon. So that's a, a really good result from this yes. system. We've substantially reduced black carbon exposures in this school uh, because of this series of air cleaning systems. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. Now, before we go there, Ellie, what we show what happened with the black carbon. Do you also have, I don't recall if we have a slide in here with what happened with the fine particulate and the PM 2.5? Yeah, I don't have a slide in here specific to that, but you know, the, the, the takeaway is the same from you know what we showed on the black black carbon slide. We we're really effective at reducing ultrafine particle concentrations, so those very small particles, less than 100 nanometers. And PM 2.5, you know, generally very effective. Um, th this slide, I think, speaks to, you know, some of the nuances of, 
you know, particles and interventions and these, you know, metrics that result. Uh, for a compound like black carbon, right, produced at very high temperature from combustion processes, ideally there are no black carbon sources inside your building. If there are, you should be very well aware of them and either remove them or, you know, intervene with, with a specific, you know, exhaust system or, or something. Uh, but in general, there are not black carbon sources inside a building. Uh, that's distinct from something like PM 2.5, where there's a lot of different you know, activities and processes that can produce PM 2.5. So generally your intervention effectiveness is maybe a little bit lower for something that has you know, strong indoor sources because they're being emitted directly into the environment. Black mm -hmm. carbon's just coming from outside, all the air coming from outside in our building, not all, but close to all, has to pass through our filtration system before it gets in the building. And so the, what we were able to do in our school is basically, you know, make that point mathematically. And we calculated, you know, where is PM 2.5 coming from compared to black carbon? The ultimate takeaway is that for PM 2.5, a sizable fraction of the PM 2.5 sources are coming from people, people and the things they're doing in the building. So, you know, we're not able to say specifically that you are emitting this much PM 2.5, but your presence, the way you're changing the building, the things you're doing, you know, all have a substantial effect on the sources of pollutants to a building. And that's very different from a pollutant like black carbon, which again, shouldn't have indoor sources in the building. It looks like it's pretty much equal to what you get from the supplier. Right. Yeah, that's right. Right. Interesting. Now, I, I, I wanted to ask, as far as the gas phase pollutant removal, how successful were you there? Yeah, I, I, I think the, you know, gas phase uh Air cleaning, I think, is a, is a little bit more um, complicated than, uh, and in part because we, you know, it's not done as frequently. I think there's, you know, it's not as mature of a technology. Um, but activated carbon can be effective. Um, and I think the, the short answer is the gas phase air cleaning systems were on the whole very effective. We removed a sizable fraction of the gas phase uh, pollutants that were entering from outside and from inside the building. Um, something on the order of 30 or 40, you know, percent reduction in the source, right? Because we're trapping it onto the carbon scrubber. Um, that varied a lot compound by compound though, right? It's not, yeah. you know, uh, you can't expect 95% removal efficiency for one compound. It doesn't mean you're going to get 95% removal efficiency for another compound because, you know, they have different chemical structures, different volatilities, you know, it's a very complex mixture of gases. On the whole, carbon can be effective if designed appropriately. And uh, as far as the sources of this gas phase pollution, do you have something similar as far as a breakdown? What came from outside? What came from inside? Yeah, we do. Um, and, and the breakdown, I think, um, you know, the, the, the general idea is not dissimilar. Um, we, you know, we made these calculations in another paper. And, you know, we showed actually that... Um, you know, it's roughly equal between indoor and outdoor sources for this building okay. for VOCs. And I think that's probably distinct from many other buildings. You know, we're near a roadway. There's elevated VOCs in the outdoor environment in this building compared to other buildings. So generally speaking, you know, there are higher indoor VOC levels in a building than outside a building, in part because, you know, there are, there are indoor sources that, you know, create a, a larger fraction of the what you call the source apportionment to the building, uh, it roughly broke down to be equal. 
in this building uh, across all the compounds we were able to measure. We've, we've got a text question. I want to kind of maybe re, reconfigure it just a bit. They, they ask, how does buoyancy affect dispersion settlement regarding size and time? And we all know that, you know, particles, PM 2.5, and in particular, the larger ones, they do settle out of the air. So were you able to differentiate between what was captured by the system you installed versus maybe what had settled out of the air? So with this field study, we weren't able to distinguish that. Um, What we were able to do was to ultimately, because of how we were able to make our measurements, um, we were able to basically calculate the overall uh, source or removal that occurred as air sort of moved from the supply back to the return, because we were able to make measurements in supply, return, and outdoor air. So we, we weren't able to sort of tease out, right, like why there was a source, right? It, well, it could have been there's a net source because you had a big source and a big removal, and then we had a small net source, right? Or it could have been that there was just a small net source to begin with, right? So we we weren't able to tease out, you know, the particulars of how things like, you know, buoyancy that might be changing from occupancy to non-occupancy might have had impacts on the building specifically, but it's a good question, right? Obviously, there are removal mechanisms in the building that'll be impacted by what's going on in the building, and that'd be a great, you know, sort of opportunity for a little bit more detailed study in the field. You know, field studies are tricky, right? We we would have loved to have gotten more measurements inside the occupied environment, but, you know, mm-hmm. it being an occupied school, um, we were fortunate to be able to get the access we did to make these measurements in an occupied school environment. It's fairly rare to have the opportunity to, to do that because, you know, obviously we're concerned about learning environments for a whole number of reasons. And when you show up to a school with, you know, (laughs) clunky devices and you say, you know, I'm here to help, trust me. And I want to stick 15 hoses into your air handler, but trust me, you know, so I, I, we were glad to be able to get the measurements we were, but with a little more access and a little bit more um, time, we could have done some of the things that I think the questions uh, alluded right. to. We're, we're right about halftime. Can we maybe, let's, let's go ahead and summarize this one, and then we'll go into the uh, couple more articles and papers I want to talk about in the second half. Is there one more slide in here that we needed to... Yeah, there was a summary slide. I think, you know, the last point was that there's some chemistry that happens that, you know, this building had the unique ability to suppress because of that gas phase air cleaning system. So you know, right. particles and gases can be linked in interesting ways. So some of the things we emit into the building, so things like scented consumer products are very chemically reactive. And if an oxidant from outside comes into the building, it can chemically react with those scented products and form particles, right? So, you know, there's a, there's a complex interplay going on. And in this building, the carbon scrubber removed not just the organic compounds, but also many of those oxidants. So that was sort of an interesting finding from our study is that we, we sort of had the ability to suppress this chemistry that is an indoor source of particles of concern. It was an additional benefit that weren't i don't think we were thinking maybe you were thinking about at the beginning but maybe yeah i mean not 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 so prominently right it it was uh you know sort of we were looking to target two different things and you know sort of in doing so you know we'd studying the system 
came to the realization that, you know, there, there are some secondary effects there that in this case, fortunately, were beneficial. Let's go to that summary slide again, John. Kind of summarize things. Yeah. All right. So let's do a quick overview of the summary on this one. Sure. Yeah. So I think the, the first thing we talked about, very obvious, right? Get, get away from a source if you can. I think that's intuitive. The second one we didn't have time to talk about, but this you know, comes with sort of understanding the, the nature of the air pollutant source you're dealing with. And so in the case of you know, traffic-related air pollution, again, it's common sense that that's variant throughout the day. And so one of the recommendations we made to the school was to you know, maybe alter timing of activities, right? Because during rush hour in the morning and the subsequent hours immediately after that, that was when the worst air quality was experienced in the, the school, the school uh, outdoor area. We talked a lot about air cleaning systems, right? That's an active way that we can intervene. And in this, you know, if, if designed appropriately, and this, I think, study showed it, can have a, a substantial effect on improving indoor air quality. I think this building has some of the cleanest indoor air in the state, despite being located in proximity to a freeway. And the last point, sorry. Go ahead. No, well, the last point just... being addressing indoor sources, and that might include, you know, some of this chemistry and sort of understanding the chemistry that can happen in buildings. I think there was another kind of uh, outcome that we talked about earlier that maybe wasn't expected because it is such a clean building. Now they can use that as a kind of shelter for people that don't have the ability to get away from some of this wildfire and other types of contaminants. Yeah, that's right. It's something we've talked about with the local department of health and the school district and tried to help, you know, encourage that and facilitate that connection. Um, I think it's a great idea that, you know, the, this is a resource, could be a resource for the community. It even aligns really well in time. Like if you think about the scheduling of school with the, let's say, scheduling of wildfires, right? School is out of session during the summer. Uh, so the building yeah. is largely vacant. That's the period of time that, you know, especially in our region, uh, when fires are most, you know, likely. And so there's some, you know, synergies there that I think, you know, this could be at a some way that cities uh, look to build, you know, resiliency or capacity to, to help protect people. And I, you know, I can imagine that might help the school district with the ability to find kind of non-traditional funding yeah. for, for these types of things. I, I completely agree. And it, it's, it's a conversation that, you know, we're still sort of trying to, to advocate for and push that. I, I think it's, I think everyone agrees that, you know, it could be a win-win you know, I think a lot of the, you got to get different government groups talking to each other and collaborating. I think those things take time, but I hope it, I hope it takes off. All right. Let's go to halftime. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Elliot Gull. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI. 
Science.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, let's get back into the second half of our interview with Dr. Elliot Gall. Let's, let's go, John, to that ASHRAE article for interpreting air cleaner performance data. What led, and, and you did this with, um, maybe you can mention your colleagues here, and what led to the development of this article? Yeah, sure. Um, so this was a, sort of the result of some work that I've been doing with uh, Brent Stevens at Illinois Institute of Technology, Mohammed Hennadirjad, also at Illinois Institute of Technology, and then Delphine Farmer, who's at uh, Colorado State. And so... You know, we, we all have been interested in, you know, obviously COVID has everyone, whether they like it or not, has to be interested in COVID to some extent for some reason. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, air cleaning systems have taken a, you know, a, a real important role in, you know, some of our non-pharmaceutical invention, interventions to try and reduce the spread of, of COVID. And so this paper really came out of some other research that the four of us were collaborating on where we're, we're testing some of the, you know, quote unquote, new kinds of air cleaners that are out there that are making, you know, really, you know, bold claims about what they can do in terms of cleaning the air, uh, both for, you know, removing virus or deactivating viruses in air and also addressing other indoor air quality issues. And so as we, you know, sort of were doing that research and trying to, you know, interpret, you know, what information was out there from a variety of manufacturers of, you know, air cleaners, we just really felt there was, you know, a need for us to kind of put at least our thoughts together on how we might think about making sense of the different kinds of data that are out there on air cleaning devices. Um, and so, you know, one of, I think, the major motivations for this is something that we saw over the past two years was a, you know, a strong marketing push to get uh, air cleaning performance data presented that says something like, you know, 99.9% removal in 30 minutes, right? You saw a lot of advertising and you've sort of always seen something like that in the indoor air quality community, or at least for a long time. And, and it can be a valid way of presenting, you know, performance data, but, you know, it depends on a number of factors, you know, what that really means for you and your space. And so a big part of this was trying to kind of get a foundation out there for the different ways we think about air cleaning performance data, 
um, some of the standard test methods and how they're reported and then you know some of the other ways you can get meaningful data but you need to manipulate that data to make sense of it and compare it to you know what might be happening in your building or compare it to another air cleaner for example all right and then what what's it's kind of tough just to do the key takeaways on this one because there's so much in this in this short article but one of the things I noticed was you, you distinguish between additive and subtractive technologies. And you said that that's, there's not always a clear, rigid line between them. And what do we mean by that? Yeah, sure. And I think that's a really helpful distinction in thinking about, you know, the air cleaner that you might be, air cleaners you might be considering. And so, you know, our rationale was, you know, that a subtractive approach is basically just seeking to target something harmful and take it out of the air, right? And so a a great example of that is, you know, a mechanical filter, right? It's trying to separate out particulate matter, sort of a physical process, taking those particles away from air, right? Um, Activated carbon, you can think of as a similar approach for gases. It's trying to select out for organic compounds and take them away from air. what we were considering as additive systems are this sort of class of air cleaners that that takes the opposite approach really, right? It's saying we're gonna inject something into the occupied space and it's going to engage in some beneficial, in theory, or hopefully some beneficial process that is going to eventually deactivate or remove something, right? But step one is you gotta add something to then take it away. And like you said, there, there, you know, you can split some hairs here, right? So like a UV system, well, you're adding ultraviolet radiation somewhere with the hope of, you know, deactivating a pathogen. So it's not always a perfectly clear distinction, but I think it's a useful framework because when the idea is that, you know, you're going to add something to the occupied space, you know, that always puts me on alert, right? So, you know, what, what, what are the ramifications of what it is that you're adding to the space, because you know, generally what we want from air is oxygen, right? Our bodies are looking to take oxygen from air and to exhaust our metabolic products from our metabolism. And obviously, there's some exceptions to that. You know, you can get medicinal drugs into your body very quickly, and you know, maybe in some cases you can conjure up a scenario where your your you know your lungs are going to serve as a delivery mechanism for something other than oxygen. But in general, our bodies, to be healthy, want oxygen from air, and that's largely it, right? So whenever, whenever anyone says, well, this system works by injecting hydrogen peroxide into the space or hydroxyl radical into the space or ions into the space, you know, I, I think there's some important questions that you should be asking if that's step one of the air cleaning system. And one of those important questions is, what are the byproducts of injecting whatever it is into that space? Yeah, that's right, right? And so I think that's a logical question that, that should be answered. And one of the takeaways of our paper here is that, you know, there, there are no established methods for doing that, right? For evaluating the byproduct formation from an air cleaning system. Um, and that applies generally, right? The ANSI AHIM AC1 doesn't look to see if a portable air cleaner is causing some emission of a byproduct. Um, and so I think there's a need for that because there's a whole class of air cleaners that, you know, there's a logical argument to be made that they're at, you know, greater risk for generating 
byproducts because of the way they're intended to operate by changing the chemistry happening in, in your indoor space. A, a portable air cleaner with a fibrous filter in it, you know, everything emits some small quantity of VOCs, but, you know, I think that's not the intended uh, mechanism of operation of that device. Right. Right. You're not intentionally injecting some VOC into the right, air. Right, exactly. Some ra- radical of some kind. All right. Uh, any other key points from that paper before we move on to the, well, I really want to get to this fire tips. Yeah. Thing. I, I think in 30 seconds, the other takeaway is, you know, like the other question you should be asking is does, does the system work? Right. And so what we provided was, you know, the, the sort of foundational uh, math and we tried to simplify it. We provided a spreadsheet tool that you can enter in the kinds of data you see from some manufacturer spec sheet to back out you know, the equivalent clean air delivery rate from an air cleaner that might not be tested in a way that the manufacturer is just telling you the clean air delivery rate. And so I think that was an important contribution because we're trying to provide the tools for people to make their own decisions, right? Take this manufactured data and, you know, put it on equal footing with something that they can translate into their space, compare it to other air cleaners and make an informed decision. And I, I think we can get those into the blog, the, the, uh, the, the tool that you, you're recommending there. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to, um, I want to, and I'll get to that text question here uh, during the roundup. But before we get there, I want, I want to talk a little bit about some practical wildfire tips you break it down into some real simple steps. Let's review them and then go into a little follow-up on that. So this is for wildfires and air quality inside your home. It's free online here. We'll, we'll put the link up, John. Maybe you can put it in the text. Uh, but tell us a little bit about the most practical way to create a clean room, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, this was a blog post that I wrote that was really born out of you know practical experience. Like I mentioned, you know, fires have been following me since 2013. Um, Not to make it all about me, they're impacting lots of other people as well. But, um, you know, just having dealt with this problem and having some indoor air quality uh, perspective, I hope, eventually I just felt the need, like, you know, I got to put all my thoughts down in one place, both for me and then, you know, hopefully to share and, and help others sort of think through this. And so the idea, the EPA has a similar, you know, approach. And, you know, I sort of developed this at the same time that EPA had uh, their thoughts coming out about what they call a clean room. So that's the EPA's language is, you know, one approach is to think about developing a clean room in your home during a fire event. And, and I love the approach because I think, you know, for episodic events like a fire, you know, focusing your interventions into a certain, a smaller space in your home can really magnify their effectiveness, right? I mean, after the fires in 2020, you heard all these stories about, you know, luxury homes with air cleaning systems is now the hot selling point for homes in LA. But I think in general, for most, for most folks, you know, it, it, you can get a big bang for your buck with some relatively simple steps for what hopefully is an episodic event by starting in a small area, right? So a bedroom is a, is a good uh, approach or a good place to start because then your, your air cleaner sizing, you know, scales with the volume of the space ultimately. And so starting with a smaller area, you know, you don't need to spec an air cleaner for, you know, your whole home. You can look at a range of DIY options or, you know, lower cost commercial options 
that can really do quite a good job at reducing the, the particle levels in your space. So, you know, if you're familiar with the ANSI AHEM AC1, you know, rule of thumb, you know, two thirds rule, if you have a 150 square foot bedroom, you know, you're looking for an air cleaner with at least a clean air delivery rate of 100 CFM. Right. And there are a lot of low cost options that can achieve that. And we'll talk about hopefully have time to talk about a fun project uh, in my lab that showed just how simple that can be. Yep. So, I mean, even if that's all you do, right, like those are two very simple things, right? Like target a small space, size an air cleaner for the space appropriately. If you have the ability to sort of upsize it, get a, you know, a bigger air cleaner than 100 CFM, you could run it, you know, on a relatively lower setting with relatively lower noise. You know, what we learned in 2020 is like these episodes, while you can use that phrase for a three-week fire, a three-week fire episode starts to feel like a lifetime. So having an yeah. air cleaner that's running at 60 decibels for three weeks and you're cowering in a bedroom for three, your mental health takes a toll, mm -hmm. right? So you really, I think it's really worth thinking about, you know, how do I create a clean room that I can reduce my exposure, but also not drive myself crazy? for what might be two to three weeks. And, and this is, you know, the product of sort of living through that, right? My recommendations are, you know, make sure you pick a clean room that has a window, right? Like you need, even during a fire, like being able to look outside and see sunlight is really important. Um, you know, having an air cleaner that you can run that has relatively low noise, you know, again, really important. The, the third step that I had from this, uh, this blog is that, you know, you can sort of boost the effectiveness of your air cleaner if you do some basic air sealing in the space that you're in. So I got these, it's a sort of low res picture, but it comes to like a dollar a window. These sort of 3M makes a product that, you know, is sort of really quick to install with double-sided tape, seal around the frame of the window. And, you know, in my measurements, it substantially reduced infiltration and reduced the uh, particle levels in the space substantially almost doubling the effective, you know, air cleaning um, effect of my combination of an air cleaner and uh, some air sealing around the window. Well, and that goes back to the two charts we saw. Go up a little bit more, John, to those two. Go to the first one. So this was indoor this is, air. Go ahead. Yeah, this was just uh, the, the effect of adding an air cleaner right, uh, for the assumptions of the, the model I built here, but this is adding an air cleaner to a small volume uh, a bedroom. Okay, and then go down, if you would, John, to the next one. And this is, I believe, the one with air sealing. Right, so the blue line. Now we've added the effect of just added, reducing infiltration, air sealing around uh, windows in the bedroom, reduce infiltration, you boost effectiveness, right? And you start to get diminishing returns, depending on how you think about it, the order in which this happens. But the, the target here, the idea that I set for myself in this blog was, you know, can we hit the indoor level that's below the annual average PM 2.5 target, right? And, and the answer is, you know, you can, right? You can do it. And I'm wondering, could you use similar concepts to build a safe room from COVID? If yeah. other people in your home have COVID, yeah, why not I, I use think the same concepts. There's some good guidance out there on that. Now, obviously, you know, the source of the pollutant in that case is coming from inside the building instead mm -hmm. of outside the building. So, you know, air sealing your enclosure 
um, you know, maybe not the, the first thing you do. You, you sort of would want to try and create a negative pressure room if you're trying to isolate someone in your home and you can do that pretty easily uh, with a box fan, for example. Yep. But yeah, same idea. Some of the advice I've seen out there that I think is, you know, logical and sound is, you know, run air cleaning systems in the, in the space where the infectious person would be, you know, try and manage the intrazonal flows by, you know, creating a negative pressure space. And you can do that pretty easily with a box fan. All right. Your group also did some work on a low cost DIY do it yourself, rapidly deployable air cleaner for use in emergency situations. That was an EPA contest. You were one of five winners. Tell listeners a little bit about this. Uh, yeah, this I was a really fun project. DIY, DIY huh? <laughs> yeah, very DIY. And, and it sort of, I, one of the things that this came from is, you know, I think we all learned a lot during COVID. Um, and at the start of COVID, I don't know if folks, I'm sure remember, there's a lot of debate about, you know, whether cloth masks had any benefit or whether we were all just wasting our time, right? And, and I think the prevailing wisdom early on was, you know, if you're not wearing an N95, you know, there's no point, don't bother. And I think we all sort of changed tack on that somewhat quickly over the first few months of the pandemic. And I have to admit, you know, my, my thinking on that changed, right? As I started to see more data and see the impacts of, you know, everybody wearing cloth masks, you know, can have, maybe it's not, you know, the ultimate intervention, but it can have a positive effect. So I sort of learning that lesson and sort of, you know, you know, having a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, having to, you know, eat crow a little bit, I guess, <laughs> except you're being maybe wrong on some assumptions. I thought, well, you know, the similar idea applies to air cleaning, right? And so we thought, well, can we develop an air cleaner based on similar principles? Sure, ideally you want a HEPA filter. And maybe if you don't have a HEPA filter, you have a MRF, MRF 13 filter. These are eff effective uh, filters, right? They have high removal efficiency. I think it's sort of logical to think like, let's get the things out of the air each time you pass air through the filter. But the other side of it is, well, you know, maybe you accept a lower efficiency if you can move a bunch of air through it or if it's the only thing you have available to you. Mm -hmm. So that sort of thinking about, you know, early on in COVID, you know, the utility of cloth masks combined with the September 2020 fires in Portland, where even if you wanted a high efficiency, you know, uh, filter, or even yeah. if you wanted a MERV 13 filter to build a MERV 13 box fan combo, you couldn't get them. Like you couldn't get commercial portable HEPA filters. You couldn't get MERV 13 filters. They just weren't available. So sort of having those two experiences, and I sort of thought, well, what if we try the equivalent of a cloth face mask on a box fan, right? And so some students worked with me. It was a fun project. We basically said, like, how simple and how quick can we make an effective air cleaner? So you see a picture of it here, right? This is what resulted of just some, like, having fun in the lab. We grabbed a box fan. My mother-in-law, who's a brilliant seamstress, sewed me some essentially giant socks out of cotton batting. So she sewed them into a tube. We folded over the end of the other end of the tube and sealed it, quote unquote, with a rubber band and then ratchet strapped the open end to the box fan. And this picture is with the box fan operating. So it's sort of inflating the cotton sock that we created. And it's actually a pretty effective air cleaner. We got 125 cubic feet per minute of clean air for a PM 2.5 when we tested this device in some bedrooms. And so we wrote that up, submitted it to the EPA, and it was one of the five winners. And so we're going to get to continue um, developing this. And the EPA will be 
confirming our results and testing our prototype uh, hopefully this summer. And then that you now have another project you're working on. Um, is this the, the one? I, I make sure I have it right. Household atmospheric dynamics under elevated smoke. That's right. Yeah. So uh, it, it sort of it, what finishing work, you know, thinking about this proposal, uh, my partner and I were trying to come up with good acronyms for our proposal. And so Hades <laughs> is Hades. the result of household <laughs> atmospheric dynamics under elevated smoke. And I'm reasonably convinced that in, that was in large part why we got the proposal, because I, I like I think it's a good acronym if I say so myself. Yeah. Uh, September 2020 in Portland, it certainly felt like we were you know down down hanging out with, in Hades there. Um, so yeah, that's a project that focuses on, you know, the similar ideas, you know, how do we develop a suite of interventions that can dramatically reduce our exposures to uh, the emissions of uh, wildfires in, you know, in the context of this project is sort of in urban centers that might be, you know, in a wildfire plume for a substantial period of time. We're going to run over about five minutes. Is that you, you able to stick around with us? That's yeah, that's great. Okay. Let's go to the roundup, John. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, I've got a couple questions the Z-Man put in here, and uh, and then I want to get to these text questions from our audience. But uh, let's start with any recommendations for what homeowners can do after a wildfire to clean up the, the soot and the, the particulate left behind. So the stuff yeah. that's not in the air anymore. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I, I've, I've mostly thought about this problem from a standpoint of, you know, buildings that are not, you know, directly impacted by fire damage. Um, and so, you know, certainly soot can travel long distances. Um, in September 2020, for example, you know, there, there weren't sort of large visible soot particles that I think were, present in the plume because it was far enough away from us. But, you know, certainly post-fire, I think there are some cleaning activities that can take place, um, you know, whether or not there's like soot accumulation or not. And, and I think they, they run a range of, you know, interventions for air and for surfaces that can all, can all work together. I think one is to continue using air cleaning systems um, post-fire, uh, ventilate your building, run air cleaning systems, ideally with, you know, high efficiency filtration and um, systems that clean gases as well. So like benzene levels might be elevated post-fire, for example, and carbon can do a good job removing benzene. So while you're sort of figuring out, you know, what cleaning activities you might do, you know, keep running those air cleaning systems, ventilate as you can. Um, You know, I think if you're able to, to wear good PPE while you're cleaning, I think that's a good idea, like an N95, a good, a well-fitting respirator is a good idea vacuuming with a vacuum with a HEPA filter. So you're not just, you know, uh, creating an emission source while you remediate. If you're susceptible or have, you know, health, health uh, issues, you know, you might consider, you know, you, you not be the person to do these cleaning activities, right? Um, I think another one that, you know, uh, I think we need a little more data on, but I think, you know, it, it might be a good idea to swap out your filter. Uh, post-fire, especially if it's a long-lasting, persistent fire. 
that's one of the topics of the research project we're working on. And obviously the whole purpose of your filter is to remove particles from air, but those particles can contain you know, a variety of compounds that could be volatile enough to sort of slowly re-emit from the filter. That's a question mm -hmm. we're studying in our research project. And I think at this moment, you know, if you have the means to do so, and it was a long fire, I mean, maybe for the $20 or so that it might take to replace your furnace filter or the filters on your air cleaning systems, I think that's probably a worthy investment. The, the last question, you know, the last thing is sort of like, you know, what other surface cleaning might you do is one that comes up a lot. And it's one that, you know, I think my group is actively researching. I know there's been, you know, some work on this. There's some products on the market for cleaning surfaces. And at the moment, I think, you know, soap and water or maybe some, um, you know, relatively straightforward uh, typical cleaning products, you know, it recommends sort of cleaning horizontal surfaces with those after the fire as well. Well, and there's also, this is a good topic, and I'm going to get you and Cliff together on this, and I know we've got some listeners that, that deal with this as well. Um, sometimes you want to use a dry removal method, uh, and then maybe a combination and going in with, with, with a wet removal method. So, I think that's a good topic for you and Cliff to talk about. Maybe we'll uh, get you back after you a little further down the road with your studies. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to talk with him. I know you were saying he has a lot of experience in this area. A ton. Um, the other thing is, do, do you have any recommendations for sampling surfaces after a wildfire? You know, a lot of times our listeners, they're restoration contractors yep. and insurance company will say, well, that doesn't need cleaned or, you know, how do you know that needs clean? Yeah. Right. What do you, what do you do as far as surface sampling? So that's a really interesting question. And it's one of the thrusts of the project that got funded by the EPA is we want to develop a, a low, um, uh, a relatively straightforward, let's say um, sampling method post-fire. Right. And so what we're, there's, there's precedence for this in, in the research literature where you can sample from non-porous surfaces in an indoor space. And so we've been testing this method. Um, and you know, if you take a, a wetted wipe with some solvent and you wipe a glass surface, you can recover a meaningful fraction of the lower volatility organic compounds that might persistently be on a surface. So glass is a good medium because it's non-porous um, and you can sort of swipe it really, relatively easily. And so we're working on developing that method, but we also, you know, wanted to look at other indoor surfaces. So it's an interesting early finding is that we've, we've been trying this method on painted drywall as well, right? Because painted drywall covers a huge fraction of indoor environments. Big fraction, yes. And what we've, and so yeah, so there are the idea is, well, if these low volatility organics are partitioning to drywall, what, where are they, what are they doing, right? And so question one is, you know, well, can we, Get them back if we just swipe the drywall with a solvent with a wetted solvent and the, what looks to be the early answer is no we can't right so what we're doing is we're doping known quantities of what are called pahs polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons onto mm -hmm. painted drywall so we know how much we put on there we're going and doing this wetted solvent wipe on drywall and we can't get them back we can get them back from paint or from uh, from glass, but we can't get them back from paint. So hmm. we're convinced that it's not a problem with our method, but rather PAHs are, you know, sort of stickier, if you want to call it that, on painted drywall. So that's sort of like, it's an interesting finding, I think, because it, it sort of cuts both ways, good and bad, I suppose, right? It, it might, maybe they're, you know, persistently removed from error. They're not going to partition out so easily, but 
you know, it might be more difficult to, you know, remediate that, or maybe you don't need to, right? I think there's a need for more research on that topic of, you know, where are these semi and lower volatility compounds going in your space? And then, you know, over the subsequent months to years, is it a problem, right? And how do we remediate for it? So, you know, we're, we're working on it. I think there's a lot of, there's probably more questions than answers at this moment, but, you know, I think you know, over the next couple of years, we hope to have, you know, some guidance there of at least how you might, you know, sample some surfaces and get some information back on that. It does require that you know mass spec, right? So you, you need to have access to like a GCMS facility right. to be able to do that, those sampling methods. And there may be other things you could sample for that would be easier, um, you know, soot particles, et cetera. I know people do right, some sample sure. for that, but that's something we can talk about later. Let, let me go back to a couple of these audience questions. Uh, Elliot, your research is very important for establishing levels of filtration, which should be used in schools. Would you care to comment on Ed's conclusions with respect to the justification for MERV-13 in schools based on, based on health-related evidence? One, MERV-13 is only supported when there are strong sources of fine particulates outside, and two, MERV-13 is not supported for reducing COVID transmission. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, that's... That's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> I mean, I, I think to... To get into that, I think we'd probably need some time and some opportunity for me to hear more about, you know, where you're, it sounds like these are your conclusions is what you're saying, um, yeah. and learn more about where, you know, where, where you're coming, coming from with that and, and learn from you on that a little bit. Um, you know, I, I'd say, you know, MERV-13 as a, as a bump from MERV-8, you know, is probably a generally beneficial move for indoor air quality in part because, you know, even if there aren't outdoor sources, it's going to do a better job of removing indoor sources of particulate matter. You know, if the system can handle it and you're not dramatically reducing airflows and things like that, you know, um, I think there's probably a benefit there for indoor air quality generally more broadly than whether or not there's, you know, fine part particulate matter outside because there's also fine particulate matter inside. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd love to chat with that a little bit more on, on what you're thinking on that, but, you know, uh, put you and Ed to, in touch and, and yeah, sure. follow up later. The other question, I, my computer just froze up on me. So I, I remember one was, um, what are your thoughts on maybe positively pressurizing a room in a wildfire situation to keep the smoke out from yeah. the first place? Yeah, right. No, I think that's, that's a, an interesting, I think, um, you know, valid approach. And I've seen, I know there was, um, I know there's a, a research group working on developing what they're calling a DIY low cost air cleaner that does exactly that. Right. They, and I, I really love the, I love these sort of like, you know, just let's get out there and do it type, you know, research groups who are putting actual things together. So they sort of had built their own, like think of it as like a window unit air conditioner. So their idea was that you stick this thing and seal it well into a window but and it's not an air conditioner, though I think they're saying that down the road they might like to add cooling because obviously during a fire, heat and fire are often, you know, together. Um, but they had a, a carbon uh, scrubber and I think, a you know, I don't remember if it was MERV 13 or MERV 16 or whatever, but carbon and mechanical filter positively pressurized the space. And that was exactly their approach, right? Now we know where the air is coming from. We know it's treated and we're slightly positively pressurizing this space to try and maintain uh, you know, exfiltration from the space and bringing in air from outside that's been very well cleaned. 
And any comments on the current issue of ASHRAE, gaseous air cleaning is being used to justify reducing ventilation under the 62 IAQ procedure Yeah, based on uh, spot measurements of a few VOCs. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a great comment, and I think it's an issue. Yeah, it's concerning to me, right? I mean, we know really well that, you know, outdoor air ventilation. Now, obviously, there are, there are cases where outdoor air ventilation needs some more attention, like the one I brought up. But, you know, broadly speaking, bringing in more outdoor air, we know to be a good thing for the occupants of the building. And we're not, you know, generally near the threshold where you get, you know, minimal deltas in some benefit with more outdoor air. So the idea that, you know, we should reduce outdoor air, sure, there's energy savings. I think it's an approach that we should be studying and you know, using carefully, maybe in certain circumstances. But I, I do think it's a big concern if we're talking about technologies that are, you know, sort of in part marketed, because they'll still save you money by reducing outdoor air when I think we really need to do more work on checking those underlying assumptions of whether we've addressed what we're claiming we're addressing. Because we're from, from my from my thinking, you know, more outdoor air, we're still in a regime where more outdoor air is a good thing. Um, you know, obviously, there are there are issues we need to address that go beyond just piping in as much outdoor air as possible. But um, it, it, it's something we need to, to sort of delicately manage, right? And I, and I don't think we're there yet. Okay. And one final one. What about using alcohol wipes with charged claws, I guess, for, sampling? for sampling? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, I think you're, that's on the right, that's on the same track that we are. And the research literature, there's lots of papers that take what's called a Kim wipe which is just a lint-free like tissue, basically think of it like that. And you can make these yourself, right? You sort of, you know, apply solvent like isopropyl alcohol, dichloromethane. There's a variety of solvents you can use, but, you know, including alcohols like you're talking about. You can also buy them from manufacturers where they're sort of pre-made wipes intended for this purpose of uh, swiping for, for, um, for sampling. But I think where John might be getting at, and I, I'm agreeing with this, I have the same thought is, well, maybe a low cost, low cost cleaning approach for vertical surfaces or horizontal surfaces as well is, you know, ethanol is a pretty good solvent for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or many of them. So you can get ethanol in large quantities pretty cheaply. So yep. perhaps that's, you know, one low cost remediation method that, you know, you might think about. And, and that is something that we're studying. All right. One other one here. Um, do you think, and I, Tom, thank you, because this kind of is right up Elliot's uh, alley here. Do you think schools will add commercial-grade air quality monitors that will measure top 10 parameters of indoor air quality? I know this is something you're teaching on right now is these low-cost monitors. Is that or am I wrong? Yeah, no, no. So certainly we do work with low-cost uh, air quality monitors. They're a great tool. Um, you know, I, I think it is coming. I, I think buildings in general – will be much more broadly instrumented, not just for carbon dioxide, but, you know, other air pollutants. There are good monitors, you know, that can give you meaningful relative uh, information. So, you know, how did, how does today look compared to yesterday? But, you know, if you do a little bit more work, you can also get good information on absolute levels. Um, so, you know, like how much particulate matter is actually there. So um, I think that's coming. Okay. And, just a, a quick comment from Ed. Testing surfaces for contaminants cannot distinguish wildfire residue. Marty King and he developed a much simpler method based on soot ash patterns 
visible by optical microscopy. Again, I'm going to put the two of you together yeah, after I'd, the show. I'd love to talk with you with them about. I, so our our approach, we're targeting PAHs specifically, and and so one way that we'd look to you know attribute it to fires would be to do like pre post sampling, pre wildfire, after the wildfire. But you know, absolutely, like PAHs come from lots of places, right? Yeah. So our focus on PAHs. You know, there is that question of, you know, what might be confounding our ability to say that this building is contaminated with pHs from a wildfire versus any number of other things. You know, if someone's a heavy indoor smoker, you might find a lot of pHs and you can't blame a wildfire for that, for example. So, yeah, Ed, thanks for that. I'd love to chat with you about what you've been working on. All right, Dr. Elliot Gall, is there anything we missed? Uh, Anything you'd like to add? It was a great interview. Got over a lot of territory. I didn't think we'd make it, but I believe we (laughs) did. Most of no, what we I, wanted to. <laughs> I, I really appreciate the chance to talk and, you know, uh, share some of our work. I, I appreciate, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who've been doing this a long time. And I really mean it when I say Ed and some of the others. I'd love to, to email or chat. You know, there's a lot that I'd love to learn from this community as well. So I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Elliot Gall. I want to also thank John. You got to have faith at the controls. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Most importantly, our growing group of sponsors and our growing audience. And happy Earth Day. Thanks, Vic. Uh, Very interesting show. And happy Earth Day to you as well. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.